chapter 5, uh, 1 through 20, and I just realized that I need my glasses, so I apologize. All right, here we go. They arrived on the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. As Jesus got out of the boat, a madman from the cemetery came up to him. He lived there among the tombs and graves. No one could restrain him. He couldn't be chained, couldn't be tied down. He had been tied up many times with chains and ropes, but he broke the chains, snapped the ropes. No one was strong enough to tame him. Night and day, he roamed through the graves in the hills, screaming out and slashing himself with sharp stones. When he saw Jesus a long way off, he ran and bowed in worship before him, then bellowed in protest. What business do you have, Jesus? Son of the high God, messing with me. I swear to God, don't give me a hard time. Jesus had just commanded the tormenting evil spirit, out, get out of the man. Jesus asked him, tell me your name. He replied, my name is Mob. I'm a rioting mob. Then he desperately begged Jesus not to banish them from the country. A large herd of pigs was browsing and rooting on a nearby hill. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we can live in them. Jesus gave the order. But it was even worse for the pigs than for the man. Crazed, they stampeded over a cliff into the sea and drowned. Those tending the pigs, scared to death, bolted and told their story in town and country. Everyone wanted to see what had happened. They came up to Jesus and saw the madman sitting there wearing decent clothes and making sense no longer a walking madhouse of a man. Those who had seen it told the others what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. At first, they were in awe. And then, they were upset, upset over the drowned pigs. They demanded that Jesus leave and not come back. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the demon-delivered man begged to go along, but he wouldn't let him. Jesus said, go home to your own people. Tell them your story what the master did, how he had mercy on you. The man went back and began to preach in the Ten Towns area about what Jesus had done. He was the talk of the town. All right, I'm going to pray as Cody comes up, and he will teach us this morning. Father, we thank you for this story, a story that we can look at the life of Jesus, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, and again, Lord, that we would make much of Jesus this morning. And so fill Cody and uh, deliver us the message that you want us to hear. We uh, commit it to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello. Check, check, check. You there? Am I muted? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. Cool. Perfect. All right. Yeah, it's first week doing sound. So, <laughs> ever. No, I... So um, anyway, I thought that talking about a passage about a, a demon would be a good, appropriate Halloween message. Um, you know what's interesting? You know, moving from Washington State, one of the things that always blew me away when we lived here is how big this holiday is to our community. 
And um, I came from a very conservative background, and right, so we didn't always do the trick-or-treating thing. But one of the things I loved about Halloween is I get to meet every one of my neighbors. They open their door for me, even if it's just hi. Well, not for me, for our kids, because they're way <laughs> cuter. And we get to, we get to participate in, a, in our community in some way in meeting our, our neighbors. And so I always, I always love being able to redeem something that here is, you know, it's just a lot of fun, but like where some people have put such this, this uh, aspect, how evil, it's like there is, yeah, but you know what? We get to redeem it because we don't believe that. We believe in Jesus. And we get to love our neighbor in a unique way and participate in something that they're celebrating in a way, and we have the freedom in Jesus to do that. And so it's always fun. Um, usually our, our neighborhood would do like a meal and all this, and unfortunately they didn't do this year. But anyway, so last week, if you were here, I'll jump in. Um, we talked about suffering, and we talked about storms. We were in Matthew chapter 14, and it was, um, suffering's never fun. And um, it's one of those things where we kind of talked about how God used the storm for the disciples to expand their perspective of Jesus and how we kind of related that to our lives, how when we go through things, a lot of times it's in these hard times that God changes how we see him. He's near, he's, there's more of an intimacy that takes place and how he did this work in, in the disciples. And so this week we're going to have another storm before, right before the text that, um, that Derek read, uh, there's another storm and, uh, yeah, I just want to kind of build on that. Just As you know, we're just talking about Jesus, trying to figure out stories about Jesus so we can understand Jesus more. So to set the stage and kind of where our story is going to take place, we're going to be in the Capernaum area, right on the Sea of Galilee. Now, um, what's crazy about this area is that if you were to go there today, it almost looks identical, the topography and everything else. Yes, some cities have sprung up, but for the large part, there is still, so there's only two sections in this area where this story could have probably taken place because we know that they didn't go off a cliff, right? They ran down into the water and drowned. And so there's only a couple slopes that go into the water on that side of the Sea of Galilee. It's pretty fascinating when you're there. You're like, oh my goodness, this is like the same as it's been for a couple thousand years. So this is home base. Chronologically, this is going to take place before our story that we talked about last week, okay? So this is going to be early on in Jesus's ministry. And we are going to... Um, pick up where Jesus is talking to a crowd. And if we were in, it was Matthew, right? We were in Matthew. Um, Jesus gives this command. He said, let's go to the other side of the lake. And something about this, the command was different than maybe even how we read it, because this is part of the story, if you're if you familiar, where two guys come up and say, Jesus, I'll follow you. And he's like, really? He goes, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I don't have no place to lay my head. And then, like, basically, I'm going to be homeless. Is that cool with you? And then another guy comes up and says, let me, let me first go bury my father. This idea that, like, let me go get my home affairs in order, and then I'm going to follow you. And so Jesus gives this command to go to this other side of the sea, and he did it with such, there was such an ominous tone that these guys believed that they were leaving their life to follow Jesus. He was calling them on this mission, and they didn't know when they were coming home. And so I'm going to start in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And it says, On that day when evening had come, he said, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, 
and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the, uh, the waves, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea and he said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so imagine what's going on with these guys, right? Like this early on, this is Mark chapter 4, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, he gives this, this command, like we're going to the other side, and, and there's this interaction that takes place with these guys that are like, yeah, I'll go, and he's like, really, are you sure? And they're like, okay, maybe not, right? And it says in Matthew that those, that his disciples got in the boat, right? So there's this idea, they're like, we're doing this. And immediately, storm. Like, they're called to follow Jesus, and immediately they enter into a storm. And what we're going to see this morning, that's a little different than last week, because last week we saw that how the storm was this opportunity for us. And this is, to some degree, it's for us, it's changing us, it's working in us, we're seeing Jesus in a different way. But here we're going to see God kind of have the storm for a different reason. But imagine what's going on with these guys. Like, great, I follow Jesus, and now like I'm on the verge of dying. So here's what's interesting also, is that Luke, talking about the text, says that they were in danger. So this was not like they're in a storm, they're freaking out, like the boat was filling with water, and Luke wrote down in Scripture, they were in danger. Like this was a legit storm that they're going through. Um, and what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping, right? Which... <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in times where you're like, where are, like, what's going on, Jesus? I feel like you're asleep. Like, are you, do you hear me? What's going on, right? So Jesus is sleeping, which is amazing because he must have been exhausted, right? Because it's not a small storm. Like, there's water and waves and all this stuff going on. But here's a few things that, as the disciples are freaking out, um, they, they forgot a few things. One, they forgot Jesus' location. Where was Jesus? Jesus was with them. Unlike last week where they went through the storm without Jesus, Jesus did come to them on the water, right, entering into the storm. But in this situation, Jesus was with them in the storm. He didn't feel like it. Maybe his presence wasn't as pronounced as usual, but he was with them in the storm. He was going through it with them. And imagine he was able to rest because he was in complete control. Another thing they forgot, though, was Jesus' love for them. They said, do you not care that we are perishing? Like, and that's like, that's pretty powerful because one, they weren't perishing, but they believed they were there. But they go, do you not care about me in this? And I think that at one point in our life or other, I know that those words have come out of my mouth. Like, do you even care what I'm going through? even care that I'm perishing. Like it, it feels like I'm perishing. Everything feels like it's come crumbling down. Do you not care? And so they were starting to kind of maybe believe something that wasn't even true, right? That God doesn't care. Maybe, you know, whatever. But they forgot his love for them. And thirdly, they forgot Jesus' power. This is the one that does the miracles. He's 
healing people. He's with them in this boat. And this, I think, is the first time they actually see him calm a storm, which is interesting because last week they had already seen him calm a storm and they were still freaking out, right? They forgot. But they forgot his power. And so Jesus, like, wakes up. He's like, peace be still, right? Everything calms. And he says to them something that's interesting. I just want to camp out a little bit about it. He says, why are you afraid? And then he's like, is it, why do you still have little faith? Now, growing up, hearing this idea, oh, you have little faith, why is your faith so small? I almost had this condescending attitude towards the disciples, right? Like, yeah, like if I was in that situation, I'd totally blah, 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 right? You know, like we see the stories, we know how they end. It's easy for us to talk a big game, right? But um, what's interesting is I, I, we ask ourselves what is he saying there? He's saying, do you believe me? And he's also saying, do you trust me? You know, I've been in the car industry, unfortunately, for like 10 years. And uh, I work with a lot, a lot of all types of people. And a lot of the people I work with most of the time are not religious. They're usually former, formerly churched or whatever. Very rarely do I work with people that are actively involved in their religion. And, but I get a lot because people like, they know, you know, like either previously, like when I was on, working at a church or whatever, like, you know, I'm a pastor. He always like, oh, I believe in God. One of the fun things I always like to counter with that is like, yeah, but do you believe him? Do you believe him? And I think that sometimes I have to ask myself that, right? Like, yeah, 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 God, Jesus, blah, 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 right? But then it's like, yeah, but do I actually believe him? Do I believe what he says? And then to make it even more personal, and this is really something that's, tr- I, that's entered into my prayer life probably over the last 10 years, is this idea, do I trust him? Like, I have, ha- I have had to incorporate the words, I trust you, into my prayer life. Because whatever I'm, I'm spilling out, whatever I'm frustrated about, whatever I'm struggling with, whatever I'm praying about, there's something so grounding about the words, I trust you. And sometimes it's hard to say, right? It's hard to say, like, I trust you. But there's something so powerful about that where we're going, whatever we're going through, where I'm going, like, I trust you, Lord. Like, you have been good. You've never let me down. You've never failed me. You've always been there, shown up at the right time, whatever the case may be. I trust you. Um, And I think that Jesus in this situation isn't like, oh, you have little faith, like how I read it, growing up, right? But he's like, you guys trust me? Do you believe me? said we're going over. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? And so they, they, their fear was redirected, right? It wasn't towards the storm. Now it's that Jesus is like, who is this guy that even the winds and the waves obey him? So then I'm going to jump into Mark 5, 1 through 7, and we'll look at what happens when they get to the other side here. 5, 1 of Mark. He says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus has stepped out on the boat, immediately they met, uh, they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he'd wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. And so, <laughs> Jesus, they go through the storm, right? Jesus is doing this work, his disciples. They get to the other side, and immediately, this guy, controlled by demons, comes out of the tomb. Um, so it's probably a more remote area. This would have been, what's interesting about this section is sometimes it's called the Gadarenes. This would have been long to Israel years ago, to the tribe of Gad, many years ago. So it, it started in the inheritance of Israel, but now it kind of, there's pigs there, and it's obviously not super orthodox, I guess. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a pig herding taking place. Um, but one thing we want, I just want to preface on this text is, there's a lot of stuff we don't know, okay? There's a lot of stuff about this text that doesn't make sense, okay? And it's safe for us to not speculate too much on the activity with spirits and demons. Like, it's easy to kind of like go down that rabbit trail, but we don't know. There's a lot, like, why is Jesus having a conversation with demon? Why is he accommodating him? You ever think about that? Like, please don't send us out. Like, who are you? And he's like, sure, I'll make accommodations. Destroy this guy's livelihood, right? Like, what's happening here? The control factor, like, what, what's going on? I think that what we can draw from Scripture is that, that those that are following Jesus, that are born again, that have the Holy Spirit, like, he that is in us is more strong than those in the world. And so, like the idea of possession, we don't even know what that means. But what's crazy is I've known Christians that have had attack or oppression, whatever you want to call it. Like, so there's a lot of things we don't know, okay? So we're going to try and just, the best of our ability, take this at face value and just let the Lord fill in the gaps. So um, this guy comes out, and what's interesting about this, this man, uh, this demoniac, demoniac, whatever you want to call it, is he really does represent, I think, what it looks like when evil has run its course on a human being. Like, this is like what happens when the evil that God didn't intend to be a part of this world runs its course. And we see kind of a few things about him. First off, we see that he was dangerous. Um, Matthew 8 tells that, us that he was so fierce that people avoided him, that nobody walked that way. There was something dangerous about him. He was avoided. The other thing we see is that there was, he was distorted. There was wounds, and he was cutting himself, and he was gashing himself, and he was screaming, and he was in torment day and night. And the other thing we see is that he was dehumanized. He was isolated completely. He was naked. It tells us in another text that he, he was completely naked, and he was living among the dead. He was living among the tombs. And he was in agony. And what's we, we, and the reason why it's important for us to understand that is this man was still an image bearer of God. He was still created in God's image. He had dignity and he had worth. 
that doesn't change because he's acting like an animal. And so what's also, I mean, that's what they were treating him, right? They were treating him like an animal. I mean, there's, in this text in Mark, we have two things that really kind of sh- shook me a little bit. It's like no one had the strength to subdue him. That's what we do with animals. And the other thing we saw is that no one could bind him anymore. And the reason why it shook me is I was thinking about how do we, as a culture and as a society and even the church, how do we, how do we handle, you want to call it, work with people with addiction that have experienced trauma? Often, our solution is the same as this man's friends. We try to subdue them. We try to bind them. And, 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 and I would say, like, to be fair, it's not because they were being mean. That was doing the best they can, right? They were doing the best they can, and they, they were trying to stop them from doing things that harm themselves, right? And so it's not even saying that is wrong necessarily, but, like, that's what we do. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, with the shackle aspect, like, they could, nobody had the strength to subdue them anymore. Or we try to avoid, right? Somebody's dangerous, which is smart, right? Often because they're living among the dead, you know, maybe because they don't have any clothes on. We want to avoid them. I get it. But the reality is isolation and all of these things, it didn't help the guy, and there's nothing they could do. They were at a loss. They tried everything they could do. So what was the beginning of change for this person? It was when this man saw Jesus. When he saw Jesus. And he recognized him. He ran up to him. He bowed down, essentially, before him. He, he pleaded for mercy. Don't torment me. And I find it fascinating that the one, nobody could subdue this man, but what subdued him was the presence of Jesus. It was his presence. And, you know, like for us at Christ Community, like our heart, whether we can accomplish it every week or not, is we want people, we want to do what we can to have Jesus' presence be here. We want people to see Jesus. Because then and only then can it subdue. Then only then can it change, can it encourage, can it nourish, can it bring flourishing. Jesus' presence alone is what it was that really changed this man. And it's really, I love this story because it's so beautiful watching what happens. Except for the weird stuff that we're going to talk about right here starts having a conversation with the demon. It's like, what? What are you doing? And so he says, what is your name? In verse 8 or 9. And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. In Luke, it says, into the abyss, right? So there's some weird stuff there I don't understand. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of him and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told the city and the country, and the people came to see what was happened. And they came to see Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, in Matthew, I think it says, sitting at Jesus' feet, which is beautiful, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen, and descri- um, seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. 
And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And so he has this conversation with this demon and they're like, please send us in the pigs. He's like, go for it. And then they all die, right? The point I want to get to is this. Everybody goes, they come back and they see this guy sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, and in his right mind. What we see is a full restoration. Jesus did the impossible. Everybody knew who this guy was. This wasn't like, who's that guy? Like, it's going like, that's Carl, and I remember Carl, and he's had a tough life, right? Like, (laughs) they see, yeah, poor Carl. So they see, they know who this guy is. And he's, Jesus has done the, this hopeless situation. They tried everything. This man experienced complete change with Jesus, full restoration. He had restoration, like he was restored relationally. He was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was restored with dignity. He was clothed. And lastly, he was restored physically. He was in his right mind. And how did the crowd respond? They begged him to leave. Why? No idea. We have no idea. Was it because they're mad about the pigs? Are they afraid of him? We don't know. I do know that Jesus is offensive to a lot of people. Maybe they were more concerned with the fact that livelihood was destroyed. Uh, Maybe they were afraid, like, man, if this guy is more powerful than these demons, like, man. Whatever the case is, we see them begging for him to leave, but we see this guy begging to stay with Jesus. And so we see... um, something I think awesome. As he's getting in the boat, this guy's begging him to stay or begging him to be with him. And what does he say to this guy? So, I mean, what's, what's awesome is this guy was like done, right? And Jesus frees him and heals him. And then Jesus sends him immediately. He commissions him. Like, this is a commission. Like, we have the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. This is like the first commission. So this demon guy on the Decapolis, which is these 10 major cities on the uh, basically east side of the Galilee, a lot of it Roman-controlled, he gives this guy a commission, and he says to him, and I love this, he goes, go home and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. And we don't know this guy's story, but these people that he's initially going to tell are the people that were probably trying their best to help him. They're the ones that probably tried everything. When it talks about the ones that nobody was able to subdue him, it was probably these people. When nobody had the strength to bind him anymore, it was probably these people. It was the people that he hurt the most, that he damaged the most, that cared for him and loved him. And I'm guessing, I don't know. But Jesus said, go home, go to these people that know you, and tell them all that the Lord has done for you and how he's shown mercy to you. Um, and he did it. And it says that the whole region marveled. He told the whole region what Jesus had done for him, and they all marveled. And I, what stood out to me about this was that that is God's commission for us. I think a lot of times, at least me growing up, often 
the, I felt like the commission was to go tell people what they should do. Right? I don't know, maybe just come from that space. You need to do this, and you need to stop doing that, and this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we're going, but I think what's even more powerful and what's more effective is we're saying, like, this is what Jesus has done for me. Right? Like, and, and really what I've come to discover is that my communication of what the good news is is directly connected to how I understand the good news. What I found so often as I was growing up is that I would deliver the bad news. And, and so like if I'm looking at the gospel, I was just talking with Derek this morning, the gospel is twofold. It's that yes, Jesus has paid for my sins on the cross. I am forgiven. But it's also, I am accepted by the Father because Jesus' righteousness clothes me. I am fully loved and fully accepted by the Father because of Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'm forgiven. And both of these are needed. If I only focus on Jesus died on the cross for my sin, my eyes are on my sin or what I'm not doing, what I should do. Don't do this, do this. I'm always like, am I sinning enough? I, I need to stop sinning. I, like church isn't about learning to sin less. But so often, if my gospel is sin-centric, it's still, part, it's still true, right? Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. I'm not saying that's not part of it. Then my message, my good news will be like, this is what you need to do and this is what you not need to do. But if we incorporate both parts of the coin, we're saying, no, but you're acceptable and loved and by the Father because Jesus has done everything necessary when God said uh, over Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that is spoken over us because of Jesus. That I am pleasing to the Father only when I'm relying on the Son. When I bring Jesus' righteousness, God is like, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That brings him pleasure. I'm accepted and I'm loved only because of Jesus. Ultimately, right? Like that's why I'm, I've, he's done everything necessary to make me acceptable to the Father. And so the good news, therefore, the gospel is about what God has done, right? It's God's work. If we read the Bible, this isn't an instruction manual, right? Like it's often, I mean, there's instruction in it, but this is a story from the beginning to the end of God redeeming the world. And our story is found in this story. But if I look at this only as what I should do and don't do, I'm reading myself into the story so often, and I, I'm like, am I doing right enough? Am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? I'm doing this. I'm messing up. This is God's story, right? And so the good news is God's work. And yes, we respond to that. But like this man here, he said, go tell them what I've done for you and how I have shown mercy to you. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. Like he could say, like, you deserve punishment. And go let them know that I have given you mercy because they're probably going to need to give him mercy. And that's the beauty of the church, right? Is now because I've received mercy from the Father, I can give you mercy. And if I've screwed up, I can confess my sin and st- my struggle and say, I'm not doing well. And because I understand that I'm acceptable because to God, only because of Jesus, and you understand that, therefore I know I'm not going to be rejected by you, and I'm accepted to you because you've received mercy, and you can show me mercy. Does that make sense? Like, it changes our whole paradigm, our whole perspective. So he does it, 
the whole cities, all ten cities start getting marveling at Jesus. And then Jesus leaves. And so I just want to close with this. It's so crazy to me, is that Jesus gives this ominous command to go to the other side, makes a very big deal out of it. They enter into a storm. They go across. He does this work for this one guy. And then he leaves. Like this whole storm that they entered into, the whole thing was for this one guy that nobody could tame, that nobody could fix. And so I want to leave us with that, this idea that that's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for me. We may not be the crazy guy out in the tombs, but there's times where we've wandered, there's times where we struggle, there's times where we're not believing, there's times that we can't say, I trust you, where we're not believing. And God's heart's for us, and he comes, he's pursuing God. That's the beauty of the gospel. He comes after us, he, not to punish, but to love, to hold, bring in. I mean, I remember with one of my kids, um, when they were really little, they would just get irate. They'd get so frustrated, and I would just hold them, and I would just say, I love you. I love you. I love you. And it would calm them. And I, sometimes I think of myself as I'm the one that's running, and God's just holding me, saying, I love you. And so that's God's heart for us. That's God's heart for our neighbor. And he might be uh, sending us through the storm for them. Okay? So with that, I'm going to close in prayer, and we'll close out with some music and some worship and we have communion available you're going to come up and just take that when you want